I'm Michael Dunn, and you're listening to Oregon Rainmakers on KLCC. My guest today is a very familiar voice to KLCC listeners. Brian Bowl, the station's lead reporter, will join us to talk about his career in broadcasting and also the exciting new career he'll be starting with the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communications. Brian Bowl, KLCC's lead reporter for almost eight years. Thanks so much for, for talking with us. No problem, Michael. Good to be here. Yeah, you know, it's, I'm kind of turning the tables on you. I, I know you probably interviewed thousands of people, and now I get an opportunity to, 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 to grill you with questions. That's absolutely terrifying. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you is because... I'm not going to have the same level of access to you because while you're not leaving us entirely, you're going on to something really exciting and, and, and taking your impressive uh, uh, resume, your, your experience and skills to really teach the next uh, generation of journalists. Talk about these projects you're going towards. Well, I will be starting in mid-December with the Univers- University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communications as an assistant professor of journalism. I will be uh Starting off by taking, I think, a small cohort of graduate students under my wing and Mm. teaching them about story development. And then they'll integrate me into more and more classes as we get into the uh, school year. And then I have two tenure track projects that the UO seems really excited about. One would be a continuation of the public radio oral history project that I started in uh, early January of this year that we kind of had to do a little hiatus from because the founder and director, Ken Mills, unfortunately uh, suffered some health setbacks and died, uh, I believe, in late summer. And so we're doing a hard reset, and I have taken over control of that project. But when I begin at the U, I'll be able to receive some funding towards it, which was something that Ken and I were always working towards. Yeah. And the second big project, which I'm I'm just as excited about is doing a comprehensive guide to covering indigenous communities. As you may know, Michael, I'm a member of the Nez Perce tribe, mm-hmm. and I work with a lot of uh, Native American journalists and organizations that really strive to kind of create an authentic and accurate depiction of Native people, not just in the past, but what they're doing today. Yeah. Well, gosh, I, I, for many of our listeners who have heard your, your follow your stories over these past few years, certainly in our community, you've really brought that to to light, the, the, uh, so much of what indigenous peoples, uh, you know, their, their culture, the things they're doing today, that's been a huge part of you as a reporter. Yeah, and that all stems off into my distant past. I'll mm-hmm. give you the uh, quick flashback here. <laughs> when I was just, I think, a first or second grader in my hometown of Lewiston, Idaho, my dad and I are walking from a PTA meeting, and I, I had this rock whiz by my head. Ooh. And it's like, what What was that? And then uh, another rock whizzed by, hit a car in front of me. And I turned and there was this kid, this really kid who was about half my height, hmm. beat faced, just really contorted, angry kid screaming all these racial slurs at me. Hmm. Um, and just as kind of uh, uh, mortifying to me, was that I didn't see any grown-ups uh, in the on the street or on the sidewalks intervening. It was hmm. just kind of like it was just me and him, and no one was going to tell him to stop. And you know, I, I just really uh, have had a lot of years to kind of reflect on that. Someone taught that young kid how to hate me on sight, how to hmm. hate people just based on their appearance, sure. and that level of racism and uh, just viciousness just really kind of mortified and astounded me and inspired me to look into being a journalist over time so that I could share 
stories and coverage of Nez Perce and other Native people and, and BIPOC communities in general so that maybe ideally there's some level of understanding that was not there before. Yeah, yeah talked about your sort of interest in telling those stories in journalism. So kind of t- kind of take us through it from from that point, you know, kind of how did you get into journalism? And, and you know, I imagine you're a great writer as well as a great storyteller on air. You know, was there a fork in the road where you said, okay, I want to get into radio versus TV or newspapers? The first fork was actually when I got halfway through my master's degree in counseling psychology at really? the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota. I was uh, poised to become a therapist. Interesting. My dad, who was a sports writer and feature writer for the Lewiston Morning Tribune in hmm. Lewiston, Idaho, had kind of nudged me not so, uh, uh, not so, what's the word? Uh, <laughs> subtly? Subtly, <laughs> that I should try journalism as huh. a profession. And being the uh, classic teen, I just resisted that. I wanted <laughs> to kind of carve my own path, not sure. retrace my dad's steps. But I did a, a hard turnabout and self-assessment uh, and realized that journalism was actually something that I would enjoy doing, that uh, storytelling and oral narrative, which is a, a deep part of my cultural tradition, sure. uh, could go hand in hand. And I was also just a big NPR listener. I okay. listened to a lot of public radio growing up at my grandparents' and my dad's house. I was one of those backseat listeners <laughs> as a kid. And it just kind of imprinted on me that this is a very... Um, a very important, very level-headed, very accurate, non-sensationalistic form of media. And I uh, just dove into doing a lot of uh, programs and volunteer positions and internships leading to fellowships and fellowships leading to part-time jobs all across the uh, media map. And eventually ended up at NPR headquarters helping uh, produce overnight with Bob Edwards back wow, in the day. Wow, wow. Yeah, lots of stories there to tell. Uh, <laughs> And then just kind of uh, kept pushing myself and worked through the NPR Diversity Initiative back in the 90s and uh, really just kind of forged my way through, even if the doors weren't opening, I made sure to push through them anyway. Yeah. Uh, Because in those days, at least, going back 30-some years, a lot of journalists uh, could not be expected to advance or even get a foot in the door unless they had a journalism degree, which my college did not even offer at that point. So... It was just a lot of knocking on doors and pleading and hoping and just kind of demonstrating that I was really into it. So NPR, Minnesota Public Radio, uh, Wisconsin Public Radio, uh, Cleveland, uh, Ideastream. Gosh, I'm leaving a couple out. (laughs) But eventually I just uh, heard that uh, there was an opening here at KLCC in 2016. And uh, so that's where my dad retired. That's where a lot of my people are. And uh, Pacific Northwest is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, in that journey, and, and, and I'm, I'm linking it to what you've been here at this station and then what you will be as a professor, this, this concept of sort of mentorship. And, and maybe if you could take us back to as you were coming up in this industry, were there mentors that helped kind of show you the ropes, but also show you what great storytelling and what great journalism is? I, I was really lucky, Al. Uh, Michael, to meet Alex Chadwick, who okay. is may not be a familiar name to many, but he worked with the uh, National Geographic unit at NPR, and he was just a nut about getting great sound. In fact, hmm. uh, I remember one of his earliest pieces he shared with a small cohort of us was sounds of like a parasitic larvae burrowing through a cricket's chest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry if anyone is trying to have lunch yeah, right now. Exactly. But I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I'll stop it right there. But he was really good. He gave me some great writing advice. He mm-hmm. uh, 
Like many young reporters, I think we always get stalled in making everything perfect on the first draft. Mm -hmm. And you will just stagnate and freeze. And Alex just took me aside. He said, Brian, just spill it out of your head. Get it all on paper. You know, it could be total crap. I think we can say that on FCC (laughs) guidelines. You you should know. Yes, I should know. He said, just get it out and then clean it up, refine it, shape it, make it something that you're proud of. And that was really a great release to just know that I could um, just let it all fly on paper or now on the keyboard and go back and recraft it. Um, Other people uh, followed. uh, I think uh, I I interned briefly at the uh, cultural desk and worked with people like Susan Stamberg Mm, and Aileen Ellis and just really kind of just took their advice to heart and just watched them work. It was really just a, a dynamic experience. And so I tried to pay back to be uh, a good mentor to uh, new reporters, uh, working with interns such as the Snowden Fellows here, and also the NPR Next Generation Project where people uh, like myself, professionals, work with up-and-coming journalists from underrepresented communities in how to put together an audio feature. Yeah, yeah. You know, during during that time, maybe the first part of your journalistic career, was there a moment where you knew I chose right, i.e. you were training in college, you were, you were thinking about going into counseling. Was there a moment where you're like, yeah, this is absolutely the place for me. Maybe it was a story or maybe it was part of a story or part of producing something. I think when what was then called Weekend Edition Saturday, I think it's just Weekend Edition now, mm-hmm. um, aired my first nine-minute feature, which wow. is actually my first feature for NPR, too. It was on Hmong funerals, mm. and I don't know if you're familiar with the Hmong people or not, but they are from um, um, from Laos and Cambodia. They fled after Vietnam mm-hmm. uh, because they aided the U.S. during mm-hmm. that war. And so many of them settled. And at the time, I was living in Minnesota, yeah. which has a very significantly high population. It's the, the largest population among in the yeah, United States. Yeah, I think it's Minnesota, Wisconsin, and Michigan, possibly right? California oh, okay. or Michigan. Yeah, okay. But they, uh, I, I, I caught wind of a Hmong funeral home, hmm. which was just about a mile away from where I lived, and learned that they had like a, 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 a traditionally a seven-day funeral ritual back in their uh, traditional homeland, which had to be kind of condensed and reworked for American funeral codes. But I went there and I made my case as to why I felt it was an important story to share because there's been a lot of tension between Hmong Americans and uh, other citizens. Okay in trying to kind of uh, breach that, uh, reached cultural understanding. And it was almost like, in, in some ways, what I try to do with Native people. But with the Hmong being so populous there in Minnesota, um, there was always potential for conflict and misunderstanding. So I sat in on a, an abbreviated four-day Hmong funeral, mm. got sounds of some remarkable instruments, uh, bamboo reed instruments, drumming, and also uh, animals that they used to uh, sacrifice at the uh, funeral itself. But now, because of funeral codes, they had to connect a rooster or a cow to the wrist of the deceased. I mean, there's spent an hour describing this, but NPR uh, took my pitch. I worked with one of my favorite editors, Aileen Mm. Ellis, and we got it on air. And I said to myself, oh, this is so amazing. (laughs) This is so cool. And I think that was in uh, the late 90s. So, yeah, reaching way back in the way back machine there. Wow, wow. 
as you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, many people probably don't realize, especially as a lead reporter, is that, you know, just interviewing someone, that's only one aspect of the job. And, and I wanted to ask you, what is your favorite aspect? Obviously, there's they're setting up the interviews, kind of building the foundation for the story. There's getting out and doing the interviews. And then, of course, there's all that post-production work. Is there is there one element you like the most? I like getting good sound from the field. Hmm, okay. That's something that I think some people struggle with. I mean, I enjoy the writing. I enjoy meeting people. I enjoy talking with them and getting them to open up so that I could have a good actuality for my story. But going out there and getting some really unique sound uh, is very gratifying. I geek out over sound. I'm always, (laughs) there's photos of me at work and people are looking at it and they say, why is Brian interviewing an invisible person? And it's just because I'm collecting room on or, 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 forest ambi or something that's very uh natural ambient sound <laughs> ambient sound yes yeah. um and and some of the ambient sound i've collected besides the among funeral ritual would also be um a mashed potato wrestling contest in south dakota <laughs> or um these were people met wrestling in mashed potatoes it wasn't the potatoes themselves right no 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 that okay, would be good. something wouldn't yeah. it yeah <laughs> no these are people wrestling in knee-deep mashed potatoes okay um just some really um fantastic sounds that i have just enjoyed uh, the jingle dress project came through they're a national touring uh troupe of people who are trying to spread awareness of um the jingle dress's significance and they came to cannon beach mm-hmm. a few years back and so i went there and i got the sound of these beautiful dresses with these uh uh, metal uh, bells or cones that just create a kind of a shimmering effect when when the people walk and dance in them, and so being able to get good sound of that—that's not too low, not yeah. too high—conveys uh, it effectively. I, I I just geek out over just getting some great sound for the listeners so that it transports them and kind of conveys a mental image to them. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to take a break. We're talking with uh, KLCC's lead reporter Brian Bowl, who will also be transitioning to Professor Bowl at the University of Oregon School of Journalism and Communications. We'll be right back. This is Ari Shapiro with NPR. People collect all sorts of things. Stamps, antique lamps, sports memorabilia. If you happen to collect cars and you're looking to make room for some new additions, look no further than this station. Pickup is free and you're helping make your favorite NPR programs possible. Learn more about it on this station's website and thank you in advance for thinking about helping public radio. And we're back talking with uh, KLCC's lead reporter, Brian Bull, who will also be, be becoming a journalism professor at the U of O, as well as other exciting projects. You mentioned just a minute ago about the Jingle Dress Project, and I want to talk about that because, and, and I apologize, I don't mean to say you can teach an old dog new tricks and refer to you as the old dog, but <laughs> it, it was interesting because in addition to capturing that great sound, you also captured great video. And certainly Thank you. you've been kind of certainly here at the station, somebody who's absolutely embraced uh, multimedium platform journalism. Indeed. Um, it's one of the things that I enjoy doing. Back in the early days, I was all purely about radio. Mm-hmm. But then this curious thing called the internet came along <laughs> and it kind of upended how we do our business. Sure. You know, in the old days, a radio guy would just simply get the sound on air and call it a day and leave the station. But the internet has and social media have really driven up listeners' expectations. Yeah. And I fortunately had some training uh, experience in doing uh, videos for college. I was in the audio visual 
department. And mm-hmm. so they would send me out to videotape a lecture or a concert. And so I oftentimes had to go back and then edit it down. And so I was just thinking about where is the audience going now? I mean, we have a very faithful and traditional terrestrial radio audience mm-hmm. that we still need to retain and serve. But the newer, younger audiences that we're trying to reach these days, they're taking their content on demand. Their content is mobile, their phone, their smart devices. They're not just listening to us in the car or the shower anymore. They're taking these devices with them and they want, I think, a very full-fledged experience. And so when I went there to Cannon Beach with Mm -hmm. the Jingle Dress Project, I made sure to shoot video. It's very tricky when you're holding a a microphone in one hand (laughs) and your smartphone in another and you're still trying to check your levels and, you know, make sure you're not, your battery's not dying. (laughs) But I I made it work and that video... um, Surprisingly, I believe is KLCC's most popular video yeah. on there with a, a last check about 43,000 likes, which is uh, pretty unheard of because on a good day, a video gets about maybe two dozen likes. Sure, 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 sure. Sometimes the elements just kind of uh, appeal to an audience and it goes viral. I think the other one that I did, which was not quite as... Um, Enlightening was a uh, protest at Old Nick's Pub during the Drag Queen Story Hour. Sure. So there were protesters and counter-processors, and I remember standing out in the middle with my mic on my smartphone, just wondering if I was going to get beamed by a rock or a can <laughs> of soup or just get jostled. But I kept myself in, in the middle between the two groups because that way I felt I had visibility in case something were to happen. I think the most of the activity, the fringe violence was out on the edges there. Mm-hmm. So I felt safe actually in the middle of this very, uh, <laughs> very uh, controversial, very angry event. Sure. But that video of just the uh, protesters, counter-protesters interacting, I believe is the second most popular one. People are just very fascinated by by the culture wars that have gone on. Well, and it's it's fascinating because you're no stranger to covering difficult subjects. And, and and to be, I'm not saying necessarily placing yourselves in harm's way, but placing yourself in difficult situations. You've covered wildfires. You've covered a lot of things. Maybe talk, talk a little bit about, however you want to phrase it, your most favorite stories you've covered, the most challenging, the most um, surprising. Give us kind of your greatest hits in any way you want to <laughs> categorize them since you've been here at KLCC. You know, beyond the uh, jingle dress, probably my uh, favorite other story in the lighthearted uh, realm would be my coverage of Bigfoot my first <laughs> year here. I did a feature about how Bigfoot, decades later uh, from that initial grainy film, the Patterson film it's mm-hmm. called, is still like a top celebrity. Uh, a lot of shows, <laughs> movies still feature Bigfoot, and he has this very high celebrity profile, which is amazing for someone who's never been conclusively. Sure. <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't or, interviewed him. <laughs> you know, I've still got those invites out. He'll probably get back to me after I leave my position here. But um, I remember I got a, a, it was on my first year here at KLCC, and I got a complaint from a listener who was very upset because she was driving in her car when my feature came on, and she had her two kids in the back seat and she said you have to now prove that bigfoot does not exist and i just had a good laugh with my uh, news director then uh, trip summer yeah saying okay this person would like me to conclusively disprove 
Bigfoot, someone who's not even been conclusively proven yet. <laughs> so I think we just let that listener email slide. But it was still uh, kind yeah. of a fun piece. It, absolutely. I, I've covered wildfires, like you said. Uh, I've got the uh, firefighter gear, yeah. uh, which some of it goes back to my early days of the National Park Service when I trained to be a firefighter in the uh, early 90s. And thankfully, some of it still fits. Uh, <laughs> I still have the emergency shelter that I carry with me, which is kind of a requisite when uh, people say, do you want to go out to the fire lines they want you to have that emergency shelter sure. which is a big foldable sheet of aluminum it, it makes you look like a giant baked potato <laughs> which is another story in itself. But it's it's just um you know you kind of go out there with this element of adventure and intrigue but at the same time you also really want to be careful because you don't want your next story to be your last either of course of course but uh i think the other times i've kind of felt um in between things was uh the social justice protests and marches during the 2020 sure. there was so much um divisiveness and political uh polarization that i remember marching along people and some of those encounters uh, were very intimidating because I saw that people on all sides of the issue uh, were packing heat and openly displaying that they yeah, had an AR-15 yeah. or a, a pistol. And thankfully, um, aside from one incident where someone apparently pulled out a gun down the street from where I was at, it never really escalated into anything that was potentially dangerous like that. But yeah. it always kind of just kept us on edge. I bet. I bet. You know, during your career, and you've been a journalist now for decades, have you ever felt like, gosh, you know, uh, uh, maybe it's it's a good story where people say, wow, really appreciate the job that you do? Or is it the, the opposite? Like, oh, you're part of the, you know, what, what has become kind of the lexicon now, fake news or that sort of a thing. I mean, as, as, a, as a, a member in good standing of the profession, how have you felt you've been treated as a journalist in your career? I think, by and large, um, from both the uh, KLCC listening audience, my colleagues, and the community, I feel like I've been treated very well. Mm -hmm. um, there, there have been a few odd incidents. Sometimes it's just maybe a, a, an odd remark from someone at a gathering. Um, there was a guy I was covering uh, a reenactment, a Civil War reenactment hmm. at Pioneer Park. Uh, I believe it was Memorial Day. They were okay. doing the shooting of uh, 21 Gun Salute. Okay. And some guy uh, kind of followed me around and just kind of jeered me for being fake news. Hmm. And that was kind of an odd thing. But you know, I just kind of walked it off because you can't really engage at that time, nor should you always. It's just a matter of sticking to the sure. job that you're out there to do. Sure. Um, but recently, I was invited to be the MC for the Being Bright Parade that mm -hmm. the city held, and that was fun, and that got me a chance to connect with listeners and meet people who said, oh, I, I recognize you from the radio, and that's great. And it's just been kind of really exciting to just... Uh, feel that there are appreciative listeners. Sometimes I'll get a shout out during pledge drives. People yeah. say, oh, we heard this report from Brian and we'd love to you know, keep supporting reporting like this. That really just makes my day. Sure. So I would say on the whole, it's been a fantastic experience and mm -hmm. I hope to, uh, you know, maintain that goodwill as I march on in my uh, new, new gig as a professor. Well, before I get to that, I would, you know, for, for people listening, in your expert opinion, what makes a great radio, and perhaps video story? It should not be rhetorical, predictable. It should cast light on 
an issue that either people aren't aware of or may not have heard a particular angle on before, and it should transport them. It should not necessarily satisfy what a listener wants to hear, but kind of gives all sides to an issue so that they have an opportunity to kind of get a more fully fleshed out story. Um, Technically, it should be recorded very loud and mm-hmm. clear. Let me de-emphasize loud. It should be <laughs> clear okay. and, and, and well-produced. Uh, and it, it, it should really relate to, I think, the humanity mm-hmm. um, of the people in the story and of the listener itself. I think one thing that really brought the Jingle Dress video uh, mm-hmm. to light was that people... This was in the midst of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. The jingle dress originated during the um, Spanish influenza pandemic a oh, century wow. previous. And these were a, a group of native people who were traveling the country and, and since then the world to kind of just try to instill some sense of balance and peace and serenity uh, at a time when many people were simply afraid to step outside or even get within six feet of each other. Sure, sure. So in, 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 in your next opportunity what are you most excited about you know you're going to be in a classroom with 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 people who are in their 20s and and or even younger and just starting out what what most excites you about professor bull <laughs> <laughs> that's got a fun ring to it, it doesn't does it? <laughs> uh, professor bull uh, is very excited that um, he'll be working to help shape the new generation the, the next wave of journalists I've had a really great time working with younger reporters, including our uh, one of our more recent one, Nathan Will, mm-hmm. and uh, Noah Camuso, who is another Snowden fellow. He went to Jefferson Public Radio, yeah. and and a number of others that I've just helped uh, train and mentor through the years. And I feel like I've got half a year, half a life's experience to share. Sure, you know, I'm 54. I've been doing this biz for 27 years, and I have insights to share. And conversely. I feel that the younger generation of reporters actually themselves have things to share with me. Um, as we progress, things evolve in our industry. Uh, philosophy, um, the mechanics, the logistics, um, ethics, you know, these all get reinvented or, or tweaked or shaped over time. And we're learning how we can be better journalists sometimes by looking back. Um, Last year, I was invited to be on a panel for the Oregonian mm-hmm. that did this hard look at its early years during the late 1800s when it published a series of articles that were very derogatory towards African Americans and Native Americans. Mm-hmm. It was just very slanted, very prejudiced coverage. Sure. And I was invited to read this new article that kind of cast light upon that. And in a sense, uh, they, they try to atone for that, that the reporting had done possibly to a number of people. And so it's always worth revisiting. I think any time that you are um, part of that process, it's rewarding and kind of keeps your own mindset fresh. Yeah, yeah. Well, kind of jumping off from that, you know, you've been in this gig, this game for a long time. You know, give us a few words on, on where you see the state of journalism today in our community, in our state, in our nation. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> All right. Well, I'll start small and work my You can hit out. a post. You can make it brief. I will do my best, Michael. Um, you know, on its base level, um, journalists should still seek to present the truth accurately and authentically. They should do the type of reporting that connects their community. And on a grander scale, I think we need to work towards meeting our audience where they're at. And that means exploring new technologies and new innovations 
I hope someday that uh, maybe KLCC might experiment with TikTok hmm. or, you know, build on the uh, videos that uh, I helped uh, add on to our sure. YouTube channel. Um, the other part of it is just the fact that um, for a number of years now, we've been under attack by certain politicians as the enemy of the people. Um, there are people who do not see journalism as a crucial part of democracy, although we are the fourth estate, I believe. Mm -hmm. We are essential to holding people accountable and bringing things to light and raising underrepresented voices. And that, we should never lose track of that. Even though the uh, political noise may be extremely loud and, and uh, not always friendly, I think that journalists uh, should still maintain those core principles so that someday, you know, we can we make a better case um, why journalism exists and why it should continue. Because these are very... Uh, uh, uncertain times, and I've already uh, read up on how journalism is regarded in Russia mm. and other parts of the world. And you know, right now we're just under duress here in the states, but I feel like we're still uh, the standard bearer for free press and democracy. Yeah, yeah. Well, Brian, my last question for you is: is is the microphone, the airwaves are yours? What's your sort of maybe your your parting or or halfway parting? Because you will be back from time to time. The parting message you'd have for our listeners. I will still be here to some extent. I will pop in to do special reports, perhaps, or help shape special programs and series. I also plan on bringing in classes and maybe some promising students to inquire about things like internships or volunteer opportunities, or you know, encourage them to apply for Snowden fellowships and the like. For my audience, I would just simply say keep supporting public radio because we are the vanguard, I believe, of honest, accurate, non-sensationalistic news out there. We are a voice of reason that sometimes we feel like the lone voice in the wilderness, but I think that lone voice can be a beacon for people who are trying to escape from partisan punditry or fake news or disinformation because there seems to be an awful lot of it. And I find that the majority of our listeners are people with great intentions. They're very community-minded, and they support the work that we do. So uh, stay in touch and keep those pledge dollars coming. <laughs> good enough, good enough. Well, Brian Bull, a KLCC's longtime lead reporter. Uh, you've done so much for the station, and we know you'll do so much for the University of Oregon Journalism and Communication School. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, Michael. It's been a pleasure. That was our conversation with Brian Bull, KLCC lead reporter and soon to be instructor at the University of Oregon Journalism School. A lifetime as a working journalist will soon transition to teaching the next generation of reporters. This has been the Oregon Rainmakers podcast on KLCC. I'm Michael Dunn, your host. Thanks for listening.